Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast. The podcast where we do things the he- <clears throat> Hemingway, excuse me. Uh, we're talking about chapter, what are we talking about? Oh no, I've lost my place. Chapter 47, we're talking about, sorry, I've done that thing where I start the podcast before I'm ready to start the podcast. Uh, Fanny Price wants a bit of Philip action. Uh, what are your thoughts on Phil's summer of adventure? Um, Swim said the mum fish, she said. The salon was a major deal. The salon um, went uh, beginning in 1667, was the official art exhibition of the Academy de Beaux Arts in Paris between 1748 and through to 1890, it was arguably the greatest annual or biennial art event in the Western world. I'm assuming that Mrs. Warren, the author, is referencing this. Mrs. Warren's profession is a play written by George Bernard Shaw in 1893 and first performed in London in 1902. The play is about a former prostitute, now a madam brothel proprietor, who attempts to come to terms with her disapproving daughter, it's a problem play offering social commentary to illustrate Shaw's belief that the act of prostitution was not caused by moral failure but by economic necessity. Well, yeah, doesn't that seem sort of obvious? Um, yeah, I think I, I didn't know what the reference was, but I knew what the lady in question was. I knew she was some kind of an ex prostitute or something like that. That was quite clear. Uh, but thank you for that. Um, swim for that clarification. I am Norwegian, said Philip, has turned into an obnoxious art hipster stereotype, and I hate it. I just wanted someone to give him a wedgie while reading the chapter. Yeah, he was obnoxious, wasn't he? Insufferable. When he took his old mate, uh, Hay- Haywood, to the museum and then just kind of regurgitated all the hipster art things that had been said to him. Oh. And... Haywood wanted to see a specific artwork that he was curious to go and have a look at. And Phillips just straight up like, nah, not worth looking at, and didn't take him to see it. How? I mean, come on. How how obnoxious can you get? I really disliked him in that moment. But then again, you know, he's young and impressionable, and he's hanging out with a bunch of art hipsters, so, you know, it's rubbing off on him. Jan Brunt said, I thought the party scene was quite charming. Miss Chalice holding a lamb roast over her head while still smoking a cigarette was great. There, that was a good image. I forgot that that was in this chapter. It was such a long chapter. Um, wasn't it? This chapter was, felt like it should have been broken up into smaller pieces. Uh, Laura Weisich said, last chapter I thought Philip was maturing... Maybe he is in some ways, but wow, arrogant much. Haywood is as ridiculous as ever. Also, I wonder why M decided to make this into one chapter rather than three separate ones. It did feel like three separate chapters, didn't it? There was actually a point during the chapter where, if you listen really carefully, you can hear me stopping and contemplating pausing the chapter and doing a part one, part two situation with the longer chapters. I, I don't think I've done it yet in this book. But with really long chapters, I sometimes, if I just couldn't be bothered doing a super mega long chapter, I'd break it up into parts. Um, and this one was a prime candidate. I nearly did it, and I thought, oh, I'll just keep going. Lady Rostova said, I've still got a f- uh, 
two more chapters to catch up, but all that talk about Persian carpets and Persian pottery made me smile as a Persian. Gotta go take a deeper look at the carpets in our house. We will share pictures if anyone is interested. Sure, I'll have a look at the carpets in your house. Persian carpets. Um, yeah, chuck them on the on the on the page. Um, like kind of post them separately. Don't post them in the daily discussion. Post them separately. Um, very cool. Laura Wystitch. I didn't know you were Persian. Oh, wait. <laughs> Laura Wystitch isn't Persian. Lady Rostova. Uh, I didn't know you were Persian. Uh, sorry. I knew Lady Wy- Laura Wystitch wasn't Persian. I just read the wrong name as I was speaking. Uh, Pony Slavage 22. Pri- uh, Price-, Price likes Philip. Or at least it seems that she doesn't feel as lonely with his company. For her to hear Philip goes away with Miss Chellis sparks a tacit jealousy. Do you mean um, Penny? No, what's her name? Fanny. Fanny, oh, it is Price. Fanny Price. Yeah, sorry, I'm wrong. You're right. I wonder why Philip fantasizes that often with love instead of acting upon it. He imagines himself with Miss Chellis, but he would never act upon it. Fear of rejection, perhaps. Just like a Romeo, Philip loves the idea of love. Yeah, it's like, love. Uh, what do they say? Absence makes the heart grow fonder. He likes the idea of it, but uh, when he's actually got to hang out with someone, he's not that keen. Interesting. Interesting little character, this Philip. Um, I wonder if it's got to do with the author, with M, uh, and he's kind of, at that point, probably closeted or maybe even unrecognized homosexuality, and he, he likes the idea of companionship or having a partner. But um, he's just not attracted to the female species. <laughs> um, maybe. Who knows? Although he claimed to be bisexual, but um, then he said something along the lines of he's like mostly homosexual. Well, I, I can't remember. Whatever. Okay, let's keep reading. Who cares? It goes like this. This is called Chapter 48. When Philip returned to Amatranos, he found that Fanny Price was no longer working there. She had given up the key of her locker. He asked Mrs. Otter whether she knew what had become of her, and Mrs. Otter, with a shrug of her shoulders, answered that she had probably gone back to England. Philip was relieved. He was profoundly bored by her ill temper. Moreover, she insisted on advising him about his work, looked upon it as a slight when he did not follow her precepts, and would not understand that he felt himself no longer the duffer he had been at first. Soon he forgot all about her. He was working in oils now, and he was full of enthusiasm. He hoped to have something done of sufficient importance to send to the following year's salon. Lawson was painting a portrait of Miss Chellis. She was very paintable, and all the young men who had fallen victims to her charm had made portraits of her. A natural indolence, joined with a passion for picturesque attitude, made her an excellent sitter, and she had enough technical knowledge to suffer useful criticisms. Since her passion for art was chiefly a passion to live the life of artists, she was quite content to neglect her own work. She liked the warmth of the studio and the opportunity to smoke innumerable cigarettes, and she spoke in a low, pleasant voice of the love of art and art of love. She made no clear distinction between the two. Lawson was painting with infinite labour, working till he could hardly stand for days, and then scraping out all he had done. He would have exhausted the patience of anyone but Ruth 
At last, he got into a hopeless muddle. The only thing is to take a new canvas and start fresh, he said. I know exactly what I want now, and it won't take me too long. Philip was present at the time, and Miss Chelly said to him, Why don't you paint me too? You'll be able to learn a lot by watching one, uh, Mr. Lawson. It was one of Miss Chalice's delicacies that she always addressed her lovers by their surnames. I should like it awfully if Lawson wouldn't mind. I don't care a damn, said Lawson. It was the first time that Philip set up out a portrait. It began with trepidation but also with pride. He sat by Lawson and painted as he saw him paint. He profited by the example and by the advice which both Lawson and Miss Chalice freely gave him. At last Lawson finished and invited Clutton in to criticise... Clutton had only just come back to Paris. From province he had drifted down to Spain, eager to see Velasquez at Madrid, and thence he had gone to Toledo. He stayed there three months, and he was returned with a name new to the young men. He had wonderful things to say of a painter called El Greco, who it appeared could only be studied in Toledo. Oh yes, I know all about him, said Lawson. He's the old master, whose distinction is that he painted as badly as the moderns. Clutton, more taciturn than ever, did not answer, but he looked at Lawson with a sardonic air. Are you going to show us the stuff you've brought back from Spain? asked Philip. I didn't paint in Spain. I was too busy. What did you do then? I thought things out. I believe I'm through with the Impressionists. I've got an idea they'll seem very thin and superficial in a few years. I want to make a clean sweep of everything I've learned and start fresh. When I came back, I destroyed everything I'd painted. I've got nothing in my studio now but an easel, my paints, and some clean canvases. What are you going to do? I don't know yet. I've only got an inkling of what I want. He spoke slowly in a curious manner, as though he was straining to hear something which was only just audible. There seemed to be a mysterious force in him which <clears throat> he himself did not understand, but which was struggling obscurely to find an outlet. His strength impressed you... Lawson dreaded the criticisms he asked for, and he discounted the blame he thought he might get by affecting a contempt for any opinion of Clutton's. But Philip knew there was nothing which would give him more pleasure than Clutton's praise. Clutton looked at the portrait for some time in silence, then glanced at Philip's picture, which was standing on an easel. "'What's that?' he asked. "'Oh, I had a shot at a portrait, too.' "'The sedulous ape,' he murmured." He turned away to Lawson's canvas. Philip reddened, but did not speak. Well, what do you think of it? asked Lawson at length. The modelling's jolly good, said Clutton, and I think it's very well drawn. Do you think the values are all right? Quite. Lawson smiled with delight. He shook himself in his clothes like a wet dog. I say I'm jolly glad you like it. I don't. I don't think it's of the smallest importance. Lawson's face fell, and he stared at Clutton with astonishment. He had no notion of what he meant. Clutton had no gift of expression in words, and he spoke as though it were an effort. What he had to say was confused, halting and verbose, but Philip knew the words which served as the text of a rambling discourse. Clutton, who never read, had heard them first from Cronshaw, and though they had made small impression, they had remained in his memory, and lately, emerging on a sudden, had acquired the character of a revelation, and a good painter had two chief objects to paint— namely man and the intention of his soul. The Impressionists had been occupied with other problems. They had painted man admirably, but they had troubled themselves as little as the English portrait painters 
the 20th century with the intention of his soul. But when you try to get that, you become literary, said Lawson, interrupting. Let me paint the man like Manet, and the intention of his soul can go to the devil. That would be all very well if you could beat Manet at his own game, but you can't get anywhere near him. You can't feed yourself on the day before yesterday. It's ground which has been swept dry. You must go back. It's when I saw Greco's that I felt one could get something more out of the portraits than we knew before. It's just going back to Ruskin, cried Lawson. No, you see, he went for morality. I don't care a damn for morality. Teaching doesn't come in, ethics and all that, but passion and emotion. The greatest portrait painters have painted both man and the invent intention of his soul, Rembrandt and El Greco. It's only the second raiders who have only painted man. A lily of the valley would be lovely, even if it didn't smell, but it's more lovely because it has perfume. That picture, he pointed to Lawson's portrait, well, the drawing's all right, and so's the modelling all right, but just conventional. It ought to be drawn and modelled so that you know the girl's a lousy slut. Correctness is all very well. El Greco made his people eight feet high because he wanted to express something he could get, couldn't get any other way. Damn El Greco, said Lawson. What's the good of drawing about a man when we haven't had a chance of seeing any of his work? Clutton shrugged his shoulders, smoked a cigarette in silence, and went away. Philip and Lawson looked at one another. There's something in what he says, said Philip. Lawson stared ill-temperedly at his picture. How the devil is one to get the intention of the soul except by painting exactly what one sees? About this time, Philip made a new friend. On Monday morning, models assembled at the school in order that one might be chosen for the week, and one day a young man was taken who was plainly not a model by profession. Philip's attention was attracted by the manner in which he held himself. When he got onto the, onto the stand, he stood firmly on both feet, square with clenched hands and with his head defiantly thrown forward. The attitude emphasized his fine figure. There was no fat on him, and his muscles stood as though they were of iron. His head close-cropped was well-shaped, and he wore a short beard. He had large dark eyes and heavy eyebrows. He held the pose hour after hour without appearance of fatigue. There was, in his mien, a mixture of shame and of determination. His air of passionate energy excited Philip's romantic imagination, and when the sitting ended, he saw him in his clothes. It seemed to him that he wore them as though he were a king in rags. He was uncommunicative, but in a day or two, Mrs. Otter told Philip that the model was a Spaniard and that he had never sat before. I suppose he was starving, said Philip. Have you noticed his clothes? They're quite neat and decent, aren't they? It chanced that Potter, one of the Americans who worked at Amatrano's, was going to Italy for a couple of months and offered his studio to Philip. Philip was pleased. He was growing a little impatient of Lawson's peremptory advice and wanted to be by himself. At the end of the week, he went up to the model and, on the pretense that his drawing was not finished, asked whether he could come and sit to, sit to him one day. I'm not a model, the Spaniard answered. I have other things to do next week. Come and have luncheon with me now and we'll talk about it, said Philip. And as the other hesitated, he added with a smile, it won't hurt you to lunch with me. With a shrug of the shoulders, the model consented and they went off to the crimery. The Spaniard spoke broken French, fluent but difficult to follow, and Philip managed to get on well enough with him. He found out that he was a waiter, sorry, a writer. Uh, he had 
come to Paris to write novels and kept himself meanwhile by all the expedients possible to a penniless man. He gave lessons, he did any translations he could get a hold of, chiefly business documents, and at last he had been driven to make money by his fine figure. Sitting was well paid, and what he had earned during the last week was enough to keep him for two more. He told Philip, amazed, that he could live easily on two francs a day, but it filled him with shame that he was obliged to show his body for money, and he looked upon sitting as a degradation which only hunger could excuse. Philip explained that he did not want him to sit for the figure, but only for the head. He wished to do a portrait of him which he might send to the next salon. "'But why should you want to paint me?' asked the Spaniard. Philip answered that the head interested him. He thought he could do a good portrait. "'I can't afford the time. I grudge every minute that I have to rob from my writing. "'But it would only be in the afternoon. I work at the school in the morning. "'After all, it's better to sit to me than to do translations of legal documents. There were legends in the Latin quarter of a time when students of different countries lived together intimately, but this was long since past, and now the various nations were almost as much separated as in the Oriental city. At Julian's and at the Beaux Arts, a French student was looked upon with disfavour by his fellow countrymen when he consorted with foreigners, and it was difficult for an Englishman to know more than quite superficially any native inhabitants of the city in which he dwelt. Indeed, many of the students, after living in Paris for five years, knew no more French than served them in shops and lived as English a life as though they were working in South Kensington. Philip, <clears throat> with his passion for the romantic, welcomed the opportunity to get in touch with a Spaniard and used all his pervasiveness, sorry, persuasiveness to overcome the man's reluctance. I'll tell you what I'll do, said the Spaniard at last. I'll sit to you. But not for money, for my own pleasure. Philip expostulated, but the other was firm, and at length they arranged that he should come to on the following Monday at one o'clock. He gave Philip a card on which was printed his name, Miguel Adria. Miguel sat regularly, and though he refused to accept payment, he borrowed fifty francs from Philip every now and then. It was a little more expensive than if Philip had paid for the sittings in the usual way, but gave the Spaniard a satisfactory feeling that he was not learning his living in a degrading manner. His nationality made Philip regard him as a representative of romance, and he asked him about Seville and Granada, Velasquez and Calderon. Calderon. Uh, but Miguel had no patience with the grandeur of his country. For him, as for so many of his compatriots, France was the only country for a man of intelligence, and Paris the centre of the world. Spain is dead, he cried. It has no writers, it has no art, it has nothing. Little by little, with the exuberant rhetoric of his race, he revalued, revealed his ambitions. He was writing a novel which he hoped would make his name. He was under the influence of Zola, and he had set his scene in Paris. He told Philip the story at length. To Philip it seemed crude and stupid, the naive obscenity. C'est la vie, monsieur, c'est la vie, he cried. The naive obscenity served only to emphasize the conventionality of the anecdote. He had written for two years amid incredible hardships, denying himself all the pleasures of life which had attracted him to Paris, fighting with starvation for art's sake, determined that nothing should hinder his great achievement. The effort was heroic. But why don't you write about Spain, cried Philip. It's much, it would be so much more interesting. You know the life. But Paris is the only place worth writing about. Paris is life. 
One day he brought part of the manuscript and in his bad French, translating excitedly as he went along so that Philip could scarcely understand, he read passages. It was lamentable. Philip, puzzled, looked at the picture he was painting. The mind behind that broad brow was trivial, and the flashing, passionate eyes saw nothing in life but the obvious. Philip was not satisfied with his portrait, and at the end of a sitting he nearly always scraped out what he had done. It was all very well to aim at the intention of the soul, who could tell what that was when people seemed a mass of contradictions. He liked Miguel, and he distressed, he dis, distressed him, and it distressed him to realise what that was when people seemed a mass... What? Oh, I've read the wrong thing. He liked Miguel, and it distressed him to realise that his magnificent struggle was futile. He had everything to make a good writer but talent. Philip looked at his own work. He could tell... He, he, how could you tell whether there was anything in it or whether you were wasting your time? It was clear that the will to achieve could not help you, and confidence in yourself meant nothing. Philip thought of Fanny Price. She had a vehement belief in her talent. Her strength of will was extraordinary. If I thought I wasn't going to be really good, I'd rather give up painting, said Philip. I don't see any use in being a second-rate painter. Then one morning, when he was going out, the concierge called him to him that there was a letter. Nobody wrote to him but his Aunt Louisa and sometimes Haywood, and this was handwriting he did not know. The letter was as follows. Please come at once. When you get this, I couldn't put up with it any more. Please come yourself. I can't bear the thought that anyone else should touch me. I want you to have everything. F. Price. I have not had anything to eat for three days. Philip felt on a sudden sick with fear. He hurried to the house in which she lived. He was astonished that she was in Paris at all. He had not seen her for months and imagined she had long since returned to England. When he arrived, he asked the concierge whether she was in. Yes, I've not seen her go out for two days. Philip ran upstairs and knocked at the door. There was no reply. He called her name. The door was locked. And on bending down, he found a key was in the lock. Oh my God, I hope she hasn't done something awful, he cried aloud. He ran down and told the porter that she was certainly in the room. He had had a letter from her and feared a terrible accident. He suggested breaking open the door. The porter, who had been sullen and disinclined to listen, became alarmed. He could not take the responsibility of breaking into the room. They must go for the commissary de police. They walked together to the bureau and they fetched a locksmith. Philip found that Miss Price had not paid the last quarter's rent. On New Year's Day, she had not given the concierge the present which old established custom had led him to regard as a right. The four of them went upstairs, and they knocked again at the door. There was no reply. The locksmith set to work, and at last they entered the room. Philip gave a cry and instinctively covered his eyes with his hand. The wretched woman was hanging with a rope round her neck, which she had tied to a hook in the ceiling fixed by some previous tenant to hold up the curtains of the bed. She had moved her own little bed out of the way and had stood on a chair which had been kicked away. It was lying on its side on the floor. They cut her down. The body was quite cold. Oh, Fanny Price. Ah, uh, there you go. There's a chapter for you. Damn. Damn. That's a... Uh, of a twist ending head over to the subreddit have your say about that one um uh, thanks for listening i'll see you tomorrow